rescue of us. Uh, we know because it's our lives. We, we know how lost we were. We know how far we were from you. We know that the scripture tells us we were your enemies. And yet, you sent your son to die for us. You demonstrated love to us. And so we thank you and bless your name as the greatest name. Thank you for all that you've done. And so now I pray as we uh, look at a variety of topics this morning that uh, you'd guide us into your word. It's easy to give answers to questions uh, and maybe just skim the surface. Uh, I, I pray where we have questions, you drive us into the Word. I pray you'd help us dig deeper and and find out what the Bible says and then stand on it. So I pray that I wouldn't trivialize any question that, that has been asked. Uh, I, I, I pray I'd speak truthfully and according to what I see your Word saying. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the last two weeks, I solicited questions uh, from the church. This is, a, this is an interesting week because I want to, during the ten weeks of Rooted, what I want to do is preach at the conclusion of each week on whatever that, that topic is. So right now, if you're in Rooted, you're in week two, and that is on uh, who is God. So you're reading these different passages about who is God, and you're going to talk about that in your Rooted group. But... I'm going to do a concluding sermon on that next Sunday. So that meant I had this gap to fill this Sunday. So what I'm going to fill it with is uh, questions that you submitted that I'm going to answer this morning. Uh, and, and I actually hope the Bible answers, not just me. Uh, and so I just a couple ground rules as I do this. When people ask questions, they usually pick things that are a little more controversial or that Christians are divided on. Uh, and, and that's certainly reflected here in the questions we're going to go over. Uh, just just so you know, I'm just answering according to what I see Scripture saying. So sometimes I think when you're going to get into preaching mode, I'm going to preach my convictions on things. And that may sound like a really heavy hand at times. It's not necessarily meant to be. Some of these issues we're going to talk about, that there is leeway, some there's not. Some, you could worship at a free church and be a member, and you could be on different ends of the spectrum here. But I'm going to try to answer as biblical as I can according to what I understand the Bible say. So give me grace as I do that, and um, I will try to do that in a way that shows humility and not like you all got to, you know, whatever. Because um, we do differ on some things. Okay, so the other part of this is because there's six or seven questions, I'm going to try to do this in a way that um, is fair for time. And I'm going to set myself a timer up here that you can't see. That's probably a good thing, right? <clears throat> and But when it beeps, I will know my time is up on that topic. So it's going to be about... Eight minutes a question, and then some of the ones at the end will be a little bit shorter, okay? There'll be a few that I kind of skim over, and you probably wish I wouldn't, but um, I had to fit a lot in. So I'm going to give about eight minutes to the first few topics that you see. Uh, there's a blue sheet with notes. Um, that's just a helpful thing if you want to um, look along with me. There's no blanks to fill in this morning. Uh, if you don't want to write things down, then just listen and look at the screen behind me, okay? So let's jump in. Eight minutes. Here we go. Uh, number one is, uh, can you lose your salvation? That's a good question. And, and again, you could be at this church, you could be a member of this church and be on either end of the spectrum. The yes, you can lose it, and no, you can't. 
I believe biblically you absolutely cannot lose your salvation. Absolutely not is my answer to you. If you were sitting down in my office with me or over lunch, I'd say, no way, not, not a chance. This is why I'd say that. And I could do a lot of verses. I'm only going to do two. Uh, one is John 10:27. This will test Jim and, and me being in sync this morning. We'll see if we can handle it. Uh, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is talking to people who don't believe in him when he says this. I mean, they're having this back and forth, and people are antagonistic. And he says, look, I have sheep, and they know my voice. Actually, the Father has given them to me. And he says, I give them eternal life. So we're talking about sheep that know Jesus' voice and they have eternal life, that's us, that's Christians. You have eternal life, they believe in Christ. And then he says, if you believe in me, you know, you're in my hand and no one can snatch you out of my hand. And then he goes on and he says, my Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch him out of his hand. So I've got two hands here, Jesus' hand and the Father's hand, and apparently we are secure in God's hand. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's two hands either. I think with the Trinity, it, it's one hand, you know. It's Jesus' hand. It's the Father's hand. And you're secure in there. No one can snatch you out. In fact, I'd say, if the Father has given you to Jesus, then you belong to Jesus. And if the Father said, here you go, there's no getting around that. You're in, and you're in. You've been given over. You're in Christ's hand. Uh, That's Jesus on it. Now, If you want a a very theologically systematic way of looking at this question, I'll give you another great passage, and that's Romans. We can pull that up. Paul, you know, you've got to love the way Paul writes and he thinks, because he's thinking systematically. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and this is going to happen. Here's what Paul does. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, Different ways of understanding predestination. I'm not digging in there, but at some point in the past, God knew and, and I would say chose you to be saved. Now, did he look into the future and see that you were already going to choose him and that's why he chose you? There's debate there. Okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to do that, but sometime in the past, before you were born, God knew you. He predestined you. And then when he predestined you, He called you. Now remember when Paul uses the word called, we said this two weeks ago on Labor Day weekend, we said that when Paul uses the word called, he has in mind an effective call, like a call that works. Like like when you say, kids come in for dinner, we're having spaghetti, and all your kids come running in because they love that the most, you know? That's the kind of call we have in mind here, that you hear the call and you say, oh yeah, how could I even think about saying no to that call? He called you and you said yes, But those he called, he also justified. Justified means God declared you not guilty. It's like a courtroom thing. The judge says, you didn't sin. You're like, well, I did sin. Well, Christ took it. You're justified. Not guilty. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, that hasn't happened yet. One day you will get a glorified, resurrected body that doesn't hurt and ache and do all the things your body does now. It'll do a whole lot more. You know, that's glorification. That's in the future but it's guaranteed because if he predestined you, he called you. If he called you, he justified you. If he justified you, he will glorify you. So 
I don't see anything interrupting that process that says at some point you can jump out. Like, God justified me, I became a Christian, but I changed my mind. No, it looks like if he justified you, he's definitely going to glorify you. And so we have verses that go along these lines like, he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I don't put this on human beings to be eternally secure. I put it on God. Does that make sense? God will do this. If you put your faith in him, he will bring you safely to the end. He is able to keep you from stumbling, as some places say. He will do it. He will cause you to stand, as Ephesians says. He will do it. He will get you through this. Okay, now, the other part of this is, um, you can believe either way at this church. I'm just preaching what I see the text say. You're free to disagree with that. But the interesting thing about this is, uh, whether you believe in eternal security or not, um, we all agree on one thing. This is interesting. All of us agree that there are people who claim Christ who walk away from him later, right? You know people, and I know people, that have said publicly, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian. And then years later said, now I changed my mind, I'm out. What do you do with that? And it may appear that they've lost their salvation or it may appear that they were never saved to begin with. You might imagine I would teach that they've never been saved to begin with. And I go to Hebrews for that if we pull that verse up. This is one of my go-to verses, I think, when it comes to like understanding people that walk away. How could you walk away from this? I don't understand it. But Hebrews 3.14 says, We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. So how do you know you're a Christian on September 20th, 2015? Well, well, you know it if you're a Christian on September 20th, 2025, or 2035, or 2045. That's how you know. You, you know if you're a believer all the way through your life, if you've held on to it. Because if next year you walk away from it, it proves you never really had it because he will keep you from stumbling and he will finish the work he started. So if he didn't start the work, well, then you will walk away because he wasn't really active and there was something else going on there. Like you, you said it, but you didn't mean it. It wasn't real. Something was going on there. Only God knows the heart. But that's how I would answer the question of why do believers, people that claim to believe, walk away later. I'd say, they lost their confidence and, and they didn't carry through. And so if someone says, Niall, well, you prayed at the age of six, so, so you, you're a Christian. I'd say, well, yeah, a lot of people have prayed the magic prayer, but is, do they still have the confidence of that prayer today? That's the real question of Hebrews 3.14. Will you be a Christian in 20 years? Well, that'll, well, that'll prove whether you're one today. Okay, 25 seconds left. Look at that. Amazing. I've got to keep myself psyched up for this, all right? So, all right. <laughs> Everybody here knows I go long. So, um, Number two, the Trinity. Who is God and who do I pray to? Two different people ask about the Trinity. And, and you know, who is God? It seems to be three. And another person asks, well, who do I pray to if, if there's three in one? Well, how does that work? So let me try to answer this. We are Trinitarian here, meaning we believe that God is three persons in one being. 
The one being comes out of uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. We'll pull that up. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is part of the Shema. Uh, all, all Orthodox Jews, you have to memorize this thing. You know, Deuteronomy 6 is a big deal. But, but the key verse there for who God is, is He's one. One being, which flew in the face of all of the, all of the Canaanite religions and the ancient pagan religions, the Babylonian gods, the Roman gods. They all have a multitude of gods. And then the Jewish faith comes along and says, no, actually there's one. Only one. One being. That's the bedrock here. There's only one God. And yet, in the Bible, we, we say that there's a progressive revelation. What we mean by that is, it's a theologian's word for um, God reveals more of himself over time. You know? Kind of like you get married, you think you know everything about that person. You don't. hate to tell you that, but <laughs> you learn things as you go. And so God throughout history is revealing himself, but when you get to Jesus, you see more. You see more. And then Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, which is more. Okay, so... Here you go into the New Testament. Um, what do I want to do next? Matthew three sixteen and 17. Jesus is baptized, and, and you see the three members of the Trinity here, and he goes into the water. You have the Son. You have the Father speaking, and you have the Spirit of God descending like a dove, in verse 16 there, and, and, and alighting onto Jesus. And the voice says, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. That's the Father. So you have Father talking, Spirit descending, and the Son in the water. That's the Trinity. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that when Jesus ascended to heaven, Jesus' last words were, make disciples, and then he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So you'll never see the word Trinity in the Bible. You'll never see the phrase three in one. That's us trying to describe what we see happening in the New Testament. We see that there's these three separate persons and yet they all claim to be God. You could, uh, one of my favorite passages, if I'm talking to Jehovah's Witness, take their Bible, yes, it's corrupt, but open to Hebrews 1, and, and you'll see that in Hebrews 1 it says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. And then you ask Him, well, what does it mean that, God, that, that Jesus is ex- the exact representation of God? And they'll say, well, it doesn't mean that He is God. Well, then tell me, what does exact mean? What does exact mean? And if they say, well, does it mean exact? Okay, I've had that said to me. Um, then I'll take you to Revelation. I'll take you to Revelation 5 and 6 into the throne room of God, and I'll show you that Jesus is being worshipped as God. And yet he's also seated at the right hand of majesty. So I'm like, well, how does that work? He's at the right hand of the Father, and yet he's worshipped as the Father. Later in the book of Revelation, remember John bows down and starts worshiping an angel, and the angel says, don't worship me, worship God. Okay, I will worship God, and Jesus is worshipped. So I know this, I've seen this issue divide a family, you know, uh, where one of the kids gets involved in a, in a, I don't know if it's a church or not, but some, church, some places do teach that there is one God, but he only, only shows himself in three different ways. Sometimes God looks like the Son. Sometimes He looks like the Spirit. Sometimes He looks like the Father. I think that's called modalism. Um, that's not true. We, we don't believe that here. When Jesus prayed to His Father, He wasn't talking to Himself. When He said, "My will be, Your will be done, not My will, He wasn't talking like, like multiple personalities. He, he, he had a Father in Heaven who's distinct from Him, and yet we can say that they're both God. So we have symbols like this. 
Get the, can we get the Trinity symbol up? You might have to switch your program there real quick. You know, Christian symbolism throughout the centuries have tried to represent this three in one. There's no, there's no perfect example. I had a theology professor. I think, I think theology professors in college love to do this. Can you give me a good example of the Trinity? You know, and you'd be like, well, it's, uh, it's like H2O, right? It, it's liquid. It could be steam. It can be solid, false. That's modalism, Nile. You know, okay, I'm sorry. Um, you can't get at the mystery of this unless you say there's only one God, only one, and yet there's three persons within that oneness, and there's a mystery there. And I don't understand it, but I know it's true. Um, and, and I think the Trinity also, it's an awesome example that God needs no one. You know, God didn't say on a Thursday, I'm lonely, let's make, a, let's make human beings. He had relationship in himself. Even though there's only one of him, he had three persons that could interact and love each other in the Trinity. You know? That's just awesome to like kind of sit back and think about. Trinity. Um, it really does mean something when we think about our relationships with each other, too. Uh, and then finally, someone asked the question, well, then who do you pray to? And it's awesome because I didn't plan this, but we sang the Lord's Prayer today, you know? Our Father who art in heaven. So we ought to pray to the Father. That's what Jesus told us to do. Jesus also told us to pray in His name, which doesn't mean... Uh, praying in Jesus' name is not like uh, that, that extra line you have to add at the end for God to hear it. You know, that's what I thought as a kid. You know, if I say in Jesus' name, that makes it good. That's like a holy prayer as long as I say in Jesus' name. And if I don't say in Jesus' name, then God won't listen to it. I mean, I used to think that. You know, that, that's wrong. That's, that's not right. Praying in Jesus' name means pray, praying according to His will. His will. Praying for things that He cares about. So if you pray selfishly that you win the lottery and you pray in Jesus' name, He's like, no, that's not in Jesus' name. I'm sorry. That's not my name. You're praying in the name of Niall. That wasn't a confession, by the way. Just, just so we're clear. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Don't pray in your name Pray in Jesus' name. And don't sanctify your prayers by praying selfishly and praying in Jesus' name. That doesn't work either. Now, the other thing you see uh, in, uh, in different places is you're supposed to pray in the Holy Spirit. You pray by the power of the Spirit, by the Spirit's leading. So if you want to know how do you pray, you pray to the Father in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit. That's a biblical way to pray. Is it okay to address them separately? Yes. Absolutely. You know, like, why wouldn't you thank Jesus for dying for you? Why wouldn't you say, Holy Spirit, fill me up today. I, I need your power today for whatever I'm facing. You can talk to them individually. That's fine. The Bible doesn't tell you not to. It just says, here's a model. Here's a good model for prayer. You know, normally you pray to the Father. That's the typical way. 25 seconds left. How did I do that? All right. Amazing. Amazing. You've been praying for me. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, here's a tough one. Um, and, and I say it's tough because it, I think it's emotionally um, charged. You know, like saying the wrong thing is going to make it sound the wrong way. And I don't want to do that. But the question is, why aren't women allowed to be members of the church board? Um, okay. At, at Three Lakes Church, we believe that's a biblical teaching that, that men should have the authoritative role in the church. And, and this is why, that, that, that's called complementarianism, by the way. What is complementarianism? Where do we get that? Why do we teach that? Why do we do that? Um, 
if you pull up the complementarian slide, complementarians believe that men or women are created equal. I mean, that's just your baseline. We're all created equal. And yet, God has given uh, uh, men and women different roles in the church and in marriage. And we're saying, he decided this. This wasn't my best idea. This was God's best idea, which means it is the best idea. That's why we don't shy away from the question. 1 Timothy 2 gets at this a little bit. There's, there's a couple places where you see this. Here's one of them. Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. So there are people um, that I respect a lot. I went, I've gone to school with them. They've been in my classes. And they would look at this passage and say, well, you, don't, you have to understand that in Ephesus there was false teaching going on. This is where you know Paul was writing to Timothy in Ephesus. And some of the false teaching was being shared by women. And so Paul only meant culturally that women should be silent because in that city they were teaching heresies. And, we, and Paul had to deal with that. The problem I have with that explanation is if you look at 1 Timothy 2 as a whole, you see that he's talking, about, talking to men as a whole and to women as a whole. Like he's going down the line. I want men to do this and I want women to do this. And he doesn't mention the heresies. He doesn't mention the false teaching. Another thing that to me, I'm like one of those guys that feels like if men and women are equal, then the way I would have designed it is that they have equal roles. That makes sense to me. I'll just tell you that. It makes sense to me. To, if men and women are equal, then positions should be equal. That just seems to follow. But then I get here, and it's like, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and then I go, okay. So if you argue that Paul said this from a cultural standpoint because there was false teaching, then why did he go back to Genesis? Okay, so, so there's where I go, okay, this is a transcultural thing. This is bigger than culture. This goes back to creation and basically God saying, I've designed creation in a certain way. Please honor the way I designed it. So I don't have an issue with my egalitarian brothers and sisters. I mean, obviously we disagree on this, but, you know, I love those churches. I love Willow Creek. You know, they're egalitarian. Can we bring up the egalitarian slide um, on that? Uh, the next one. Egalitarians believe that men and women are equal, the same as complementarians, so every position in the church is available to both genders. Again, logically, sure, that makes a lot of sense. I don't agree with it because I believe God is giving us something that's according to his logic and his wisdom. And I'm just saying, God, I trust you on this. So at this church, we're trying to do our best to be as biblical as we can and say, that men have the positions of authority and authoritative teaching in the church. It doesn't mean women can't teach. They should teach. They're, they're, there's probably women that are more gifted than other people, other men in this church who are gifted as teachers. So, but we don't put them in those authoritative teaching roles of other men, like mixed groups and things like that. So um, egalitarians also have another... Um, I put up Galatians 3.20, another, another reason for why they teach what they teach, um, and that's this verse, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Now, I was, I was surprised to learn this when I was in uh, seminary, that there's this thing called theological trajectory. Write that one down and Google it, okay? 
theological trajectory, and it goes like this. There are some verses in the Bible that have more weight than others. It goes the argument. And a verse like this, some people say, is more important than verses like the, the, the Timothy verse I just showed you because it shows that there's a trajectory in the Bible and that eventually we're going to get to the place where there's equality of roles. Based on Galatians 3.28, there's really no male nor female. You're all one in Christ. So as it goes, maybe if the Bible was being written today, God was revealing that we were going to get to the place where gender roles in the church were not an issue anymore. I step back and say, that is a super dangerous argument to make. There, there are major, and I say that because, the reason I bring that that thing is because there are major college Christian parachurch ministries, I'm not going to name names, but you would know them if I said their names, that are teaching theological trajectory. I think it's dangerous because what you're saying is, the Bible doesn't say it, but if the Bible were being written today, we can see it would go in the direction of equality and roles. That could lead you down a host of dangerous places. Let's just say that. You could make arguments and say, well, eventually it would have done this. Not good. And I look at this passage and I say, you know, um, just because you're a slave doesn't mean you might not be a slave the rest of your life. It doesn't mean you're still not a slave. It means spiritually you're free. And just because you're a male or a female doesn't mean you can switch roles. God has ordained roles, including in marriage. He has ordained roles for the church. So my, I step back and say, in humility, we'll set this up the way you've set it up, God. As best as I understand it, the only thing I have to go on for how to do church is in here. And I can't go beyond this and say, I think it's going in a direction where we can change the way we do church. I can't go beyond this. So I hope that if you disagree with me today, and I know some of you do, that you at least say, we'll be biblical. We'll be biblical. And if I've got this wrong and it really was a cultural thing, I was biblical. And we were biblical. And if Paul says one day in heaven, didn't you understand why I wrote that thing? Paul, I took you at your word. And I believed you were inspired by God. And I believe you weren't sitting there writing and saying, well, in our male-dominated society, we've got to do it this way. I, I, I can't believe that Paul would write it because he was pressured by a male hierarchical system, as Rome was. Let, let's agree with that. Rome was that way. Oh, I should also say this with my 42 seconds left. If, if you think complementarianism means that you're supposed to say no to women in the church, you've got it all wrong. Can I say that? If, if you think that that text means you've got to figure out ways to say no, you have it all backwards. You know in marriage, it, it says, uh, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives. I'm going to go over here. Uh, but marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. Husbands lead, wives follow, and they respect their husbands. I didn't set it up that way. God set it up that way. And it's supposed to be a beautiful picture of the church, right? As the church submits to Jesus, wives submit to husbands. There's my buzzer. Stop. Okay. I say 50 seconds earlier, though, remember? Okay. Um, all right. So, <laughs> um, wives and husbands, right? Uh, if you don't like that, 
then you have an issue with what the Bible tells you, what God says marriage is supposed to look like. Wives submit to husbands. Now, I know husbands have abused that verse. And I've talked to men that have shouted that verse to their wives. I kid you not. If you've done that, can I just say you've sinned against your wife? If you've shouted that verse at her and tried to, you have offended her. And how dare you do that? Because Jesus and the church is supposed to be this beautiful relationship. Do you know that Jesus died for the church? He laid down his life. He, he died at age 33 for the church. Have you done anything that sacrificial for your wife? If that's the way you're treating her? It's supposed to be a beautiful picture. Do men sometimes seize that verse and distort it? Yes, they do. And they would be sinning. Because as far as I know, Jesus doesn't come to me and say, I want dinner on the table at 5 o'clock and it better be ready. You know, Jesus doesn't come to me as a dictator. Is that the Jesus you see in the Bible? Whose yoke is easy and his burden is light? Is that the Jesus you're reading? Because if that's the way you're treating your spouse, you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. You are to lovingly and sacrificially love that woman and lead in the family, not be the dictator. And I've also said this. I've said this to groups of men. Like at the conference last year in Wausau that I was speaking at, um, you're one with your spouse. So why would you think that means you should make all the leadership decisions in your family? Why wouldn't you try to lead as one? That's what Christy and I do. You know, we're like, we're talking about all the big decisions we're making. I'm not going on a limb saying this is the way we're going as a limb breaks, you know. <laughs> and Christy's going, that's not smart, you know. <laughs> um, we're leading as one. And, and, and I, if I could say this about, I didn't ask her if I could say this. Can I say this, Christy, about you? Can I, can I tell them how you are? Is that all right? All right, good, good. As you know about my wife, She's not quiet. Amen. Um, and she's not unopinionated. We lead together, and yet she honors me as the head of the household, and I think both of those should be happening at the same time. If I don't listen to her, it'd be like Jesus saying, I don't want to hear what you think, Niall. Don't tell me anymore. You know, It's like, no, we talk. We talk. I'm sorry if you were ever in a marriage like that or know people who have been in marriages like that where one of them is the dictator. It could be husband or wife, really. Where one of them is the dictator because that's not biblical. It's not what we see scriptures say. All right. Over my eight, but I think that was worth it. So, oh, the other thing about this is uh, if you say that you can't have different roles and yet be equals, I'd say look at the Trinity. Okay. If you say you can't have equal roles and yet, you know, equality of the genders, I say look at the Trinity. Because in the Trinity, Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit are completely equal, and yet Jesus submits to the Father's will, even going to the cross. They're equal, and yet you still see submission going on there. Submission is not a dirty word unless you become sinful with it. Okay. Next, um, number four, why don't we have communion more often? It's so powerful. Well, I took too much time, so I'm not going to be able to get to that one. I'm sorry. Uh, 
No, <laughs> okay. Uh, my one-minute answer is uh, many churches, including ours, limit it to once a month so that it doesn't feel routine or ordinary. That's it. It's just a preference. That's all. First Corinthians 11.25, uh, Jesus says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever. So, so the church has to choose whenever that is. Maybe we should do it more than once a month. You know, I mean, if that was, you, you could share that, and we, we'd think about that. We want it to be special. We want to set it apart, and that's the way we've chosen to do it right now. I'm not saying we never change that. It's just a preference at the moment. Um, if I was going to defend it, and if I, was on my, if I was getting really defensive, I might say, well, the Passover was celebrated once a year, so there, you know. But please, you know, please. If we did it every week you could probably make a good argument that it'd still be huge. I, I think you could still make an argument and say that. So, okay? All right. Um, next question. There, there was one question that had kind of sub-questions underneath it about homosexuality, and I realize not everyone heard my preaching last year on that. Uh, so if you want to hear a couple messages where I dive into that in, in a bigger way, uh, you can go back and look at um, in November. I did a two-week thing on it, on what the Bible says about it and how the church should respond to it. It's my most listened-to podcast or, or sermon podcast, you know, so, um, which I think says people really are trying to wrestle with this biblically. Maybe some have an unhealthy interest in it and just, you know, want to talk about it all the time. I don't know. But um, I'd answer the sin of homosexuality is sexual activity or lust with a person of the same gender. That's Romans 1, 26, 27, if we could pull that up. Um, it's, it's the exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. And again, I would say, if you want to argue that Paul was homophobic or that the Apostle Paul was just caving into culture, well then, I got a problem with that because Paul also wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you believe the Bible is inspired and that it addresses this topic, then we've got to bow to what the Bible says on the topic. It's authoritative, okay? Okay, um, and then the second question on that is, having same-sex attraction without action a sin? And I should have said, like my eternal security one, no, absolutely not. Because First John, uh, John 3.4 says, sin is lawlessness. When I was in college, they made me memorize that. That's the definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. See First John 3.4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So if you want to know what sin is, you look at what the law is and say, did I break it or did I not break it? Did you lie? Well, it depends. You know, did you say those words or not? Did you commit murder? Well, I don't know. Did you kill someone or not? What about murder of the heart? Did you go there in your heart and wish someone was dead? Well, th there you go. Th that's how you know. Did you commit that thing in your heart or with your hands? So if a person doesn't act in their heart or in their body, then it can't be sin, because sin is lawlessness. That's what it is. If you don't do it, you haven't committed it. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And again, I'll remind you, you know what this means, don't you? It means that there are people among us who have homosexual feelings, same-sex attractions, and they don't act on them. And if you're sitting there with heterosexual feelings, lust. And if you're acting on that, you got the problem. You've got the issue. That's a big deal. 
So I, I just say that to say it's one thing to be tempted. It's another thing to act on it. Let's be careful with the, how we look at our sins. Um, that's the other reason why, if you look back to the sermon before, I said I think that week we have to celebrate celibacy in the church. Some people are going to say, I will never marry because I wish to honor Christ. The goal of the same-sex attracted person is not uh, to become heterosexual. The goal is the same goal you have, to be holy. Okay? You should write that down. The the goal for the same-sex attracted person is not to become heterosexual. If God does that, awesome. That's great. But the goal is to be holy, like God is holy. Okay. Uh, what else do I say? Is same-sex attraction, uh, let's see, a choice or a consequence of the degradation of a, gene, a perfect gene pool in the beginning? I think that question's getting at, is it nature or nurture? I think that question's getting at, are we born that way or did we choose it? Science can't tell us the answer to that yet. Maybe they will one day. Maybe there'll be a study where we figure that out. I'm kind of like, it's probably both nature and nurture. It's probably a mixture of both. That, that, this, that's just where I'm at personally right now, my opinion if it matters at all. I think it's much more helpful, though, to say it's Romans 7, 24, and 25. That's what it is. It's sin that infects every molecule of, your, of, of who you are. Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And when he said body, he meant body. My body betrays me. It makes me want to do things that wouldn't honor Christ. And I hate it. I'm a wretched man. But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's a slave to God's law, but he's also a slave to the law of sin. Someone says, is it nature or nurture? I say, it's sin. I think we go to the Bible for our answer. If science gives us an answer one day, wonderful, great. But we'll always say the same thing here as a church. It's just sin. How can you be happily married and still tempted? It's sin. Why do you put filters on your computer? It's sin. That's why. It's active. It's this force. It's a beast. And it's in every one of us. And Christ rescues us. Okay. That's how I'd answer those questions, I think, as biblically as we can. Uh, Number six is golden rule. Um, uh, Someone just said to go over the golden rule. Golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you would do it to somebody... You should do it. If you would have them do it to you, is what I meant. Um, let's apply this to ministry leaders, though, if I could. That's really selfish, isn't it? I'm a ministry leader. But we have a lot of ministry leaders here, Sunday school superintendent, worship leaders, fun club leaders, playgroup leaders. We have lots of leaders in this church. You know, uh, What about them? How would I apply the golden rule to them? Well, let's do it this way. i got four words for you. Pray, encourage, share, participate. Leave your inner Ebert at home. Let's talk about what I mean by that. Pray. Every ministry leader would say pray. Andrew and Ashlyn are on a, I think Ashlyn's better now. She was sick this week. Uh, Andrew's on a camping trip, you know. Pray. You pray. Pray for your leaders. Every time someone says, I'm praying for you, Niall, or you're on my regular prayer list, I'm just like, thank the Lord I'm on your list because I need it. And I'm not just saying that because it's biblical. I say it because I feel it every day. Like, how am I going to deal with that? How am I going to do this? I hope people are praying. Encourage. Please write encouragement cards. Uh, tell them, 
Tell them what their ministry meant to you. That's the sharing part. You know, if you can tell them how you experienced the Lord through their ministry, that's the best thing ever. Seriously. If someone says, you said these words and this is what God spoke to me through, and I'm just like, praise God. He still uses me. You know, he could change his mind one day. Uh, share it. This is what God's doing. Uh, encourage them. Write what you appreciate about what they're doing. Just speak good words. Participate. If they're leading fun club or, or, or if, they're, if they're leading worship up here, be all in. Be all in. And that's why I say at the end there, please leave your inner Ebert at home. You know Roger Ebert, the, the famous movie critic that died a few years ago? Um, he goes into movies and he's probably got his notepad out, right? And he's taking notes, you know. This was weird. I didn't like this. That was great. Oh, that was powerful. That was emotional. That one is just disgusting. I don't like that. Um, when you come to church on a Sunday morning, please leave Roger Ebert at home. Please. Don't bring him here. Because if you come here like that, then you go, how'd the worship sound today? Did you like the preaching? Did you like what he said about that? Did, did you like how that song went? I think the beat was too fast on that. That didn't, that didn't work for me. Or she, she was a little pitchy on the way she was singing. It's like American Idol, you know? Um, man. That will kill a worship service. And it will also kill a leader's heart to hear that people are, are more interested in critiquing what they did than participating in it. May you be participants and not critics. Leave Ebert at home. We don't need him here. And if you heard something that didn't quite work right on a Sunday morning, there's probably a 90%, probably 99% chance that everybody else heard it too. And that we'll be working on it for next week. <laughs> okay? All right. Um, You've got to leave him at home, people. It's a good thing. <laughs> and, and also, the sad part is, if you come into church like critiquing, then it then you never receive and you never give of yourself. And you never, whatever God wanted to do in your heart that morning, it was all blocked by, I didn't like that. doesn't work. doesn't work. By the way, I don't think we have an epidemic of that. It's just one of those things that's always close to my heart. Are we participating or are we critiquing? Okay. Uh, lastly, we're ending on heaven. Someone wrote the word heaven on the sheet yesterday. How do I talk about heaven as one part of a big sermon, you know? Um, I'll just say this. Best part about heaven, we're going to end on this, Jesus is there. That is the most exciting thing about heaven. And if you're not excited to see him face to face, then you need to dig into your Bible a little more, talk to Jesus a little bit more. That should be like your heartbeat. I get to see Jesus. That should make you excited. It's actually kind of a good spiritual checkpoint. Am I excited to see Jesus? Am I not? If I'm not, What's wrong with me, you know? What's going on with me? It'd kind of be like a, well, that's mean, isn't it? I don't know. It'd be like a Packer fan not being excited to attend a game. You know, like, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm just not excited to see the Packers play tonight. Playing the Seahawks. What's wrong with you, you know? You're like in the heaven of football fields. I, I don't know, I'm sorry. All right, okay, sorry. <laughs> All right. I was there a couple weeks ago, so I, I, I visited the heaven of football fields a few weeks back. So, anyway. Thank you for the kind soul that gave those tickets to me. I won't name her name, but thank you if she's here this morning. So, um, Okay, let's, 
Let's do this. I want to sing a song in conclusion, and then we'll, uh, then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for all that you mean to us. Thank you that we can end on the note of heaven and looking forward to all that you've bought for us and all that you've accomplished. And when we were weak and when we were stumbling, you, you picked us up and you helped us stand. And, and when we were depressed about our sin, you showed us that it was dealt with. And we're just so, so grateful. Thank you. In your name, amen.